Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 40 to um, I'm stopping at yeah 40, 39. I'm stopping at 16 to 39, and in Pew Bibles it's page 1022. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the Praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by held insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near him heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds this morning to grow closer to you, to get a deeper understanding of just what it means that you were willing to die on that cross for us. Help us as we look at things through the eyes of the centurion. Reach out to us and speak to each of us, to our hearts and our minds. Amen. So, we're starting a new series. Moving on from our core values, which we've been looking at for the last nine weeks, now I think, plus an extra one, which was 2020 Vision, so quite a long chunk of time we've been looking at that. And we're going to be moving on to Easter. 
Easter through the eyes off. And we're hoping we're going to carry this on. Obviously, it's very dependent on whether we're allowed to meet together or what we, what we do. But the plan I'm going to talk this morning is if we're going to carry on with our series the way we've planned it. Now, what struck me when I thought about the events of the Easter story of Easter week is there are just so many witnesses to it, so many witnesses from this week of such contrasts, from the crowd shouting their praises to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday at the start of the week, to the chief priests and teachers of the law who then began to plot to kill him, from the disciples who shared such an intimate meal with him, to Judas's betrayal and the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus at Gethsemane, from those who witnessed his trial before the Sanhedrin and then Pilate, to the crowd who went from cheering Hosanna to shouting, crucify him, crucify him, from the soldiers who whipped and mocked him to Simon of Cyrene who carried his cross for him, from the thief on the cross, and the centurion who stood at the foot of the cross, to the women and other disciples who stood nearby as Jesus hung there dying. So many witnesses, so many eyes to see these events, these significant events. But we're going to look at just four of those. The centurion today, then Mary, Peter, and Phil's going to talk about a nobody. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out, but I'm guessing he's got a plan about talking about what a nobody thought of the... Um, Easter story. And then Easter day, depending on whether we can meet or not, we can be thinking about the resurrection and seeing that through the eyes of eyewitnesses. But first, today, the centurion. Find some pictures of Roman soldiers, or people dressed up as Roman soldiers. A centurion was an experienced Roman soldier who'd been placed in command over a hundred of the world's best trained and most feared soldiers. The ancient historian Polybius recorded that centurions were chosen for their command based on proven merit over years of military service and were known not only for their courage and prowess in battle, but for their cunning, intelligence and strength of both body and mind. The centurion at the cross was obviously then a man accustomed to violence, death, political assassinations. He himself was a professional killer, who'd likely long ago learned to numb himself to the sufferings and death of others, no matter who they were or how they died. And the fact that this Roman centurion was at Golgotha, the place of the skull, tells us that at least for a time, his unit of soldiers were assigned to crucifixion duty in Jerusalem. He was the captain or commanding officer in charge of keeping political order there, handling the prisoners right down to their execution. This centurion and his soldiers, then, were not only veterans of war, but veterans of crucifixion, the cruelest and most humiliating form of execution used to punish political or religious agitators and hardened criminals. By the time of Jesus' crucifixion, it's been estimated that the Romans had crucified approximately 30,000 men in Palestine alone. 30,000. But the crucifixion of Jesus was likely to be one of this centurion's most volatile assignments yet. The surrounding mob was close to rioting, to the point that it seemed at one point unlikely his prisoner would even make it to Golgotha. To make matters worse, the criminal in the soldier's charge fell beneath the weight of the crossbeam, and he had to force another man to carry it for him. The crowd lined the street, shouting insults at him, jeering at him, calling for Jesus' death. 
More than likely, this centurion had never before seen such hatred and utter lack of compassion that he was seeing directed at this man today. It was also likely that the soldiers under his command were those same soldiers who had mockingly dressed Jesus as a farcical king, beaten him, teased him, whipped him to the very edge of death and spat upon him. Before nailing him to the cross, mocking him again, gambling for his garments as he hung there in agony. So what happened to change the heart of this hardened soldier? And according to Matthew's Gospel, the other soldiers who were with him too. They may have heard about the healing of a fellow centurion's servant, but have probably not witnessed any of Jesus' miracles or teachings. What led him and those other soldiers with him to recognise and declare, surely this man was the Son of God? Max Lucado writes, If it is true that a picture paints a thousand words, then there was a Roman centurion who got a dictionary full. All he did was see Jesus suffer. He never heard him preach or saw him heal or followed him through the crowds. He never witnessed him still the wind. He only witnessed the way he died. But that was all it took to cause this weather-worn soldier to take a giant leap of faith. This Roman centurion, who was hardened by battle, who killed other humans for his job, and was well accustomed to the sight of death, saw something different in this man he was instructed to execute that day. Why? What was so different about the way Jesus and suffered and died on the cross? What did the centurion see that day as he carried out just one more execution of one more criminal that convinced him that Jesus was indeed the Son of God? To answer that, we need to look at some of the things Jesus said and did on the cross. And to do that, we're going to look at bits from all four gospel accounts of his crucifixion. I had to pick one for the reading, but we're going to look at bits, bits of all of them because different bits tell us different bits of the story. So to begin with, we'll look at Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. As the soldiers crucified Jesus, despite being in agony, as the nails were driven into his hands and feet, instead of cursing the soldiers who were doing this to him, as most victims would have done, or even just keeping quiet, Jesus prayed for them. He prayed for them and he asked his Father to forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I think we can be fairly confident that the soldiers would not have heard any other criminal forgiving them for their actions. Moreover, even a Roman soldier would have known enough about the Jews to know that no Jew ever called God his father, as Jesus did. This must have led the centurion to begin to wonder just who was this Jesus, this man he was in charge of crucifying. 
staying in Luke, it goes on to say in verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there held insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. So while the centurion was probably still pondering why Jesus was asking his father to forgive the soldiers for crucifying, he then hears one of the criminals declare that Jesus has done nothing wrong and ask him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And to the centurion's surprise, instead of responding by saying, he's not a king and has no kingdom, or he wouldn't be hanging there on that cross, Jesus replies, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the king of the Jews. I am the Messiah. There is a kingdom belonging to me, and I will give you entrance to my kingdom. This must have given even a Roman centurion pause for thought, to wonder again just who was this man offering salvation to a common criminal as he himself hung there dying. The centurion would already have read the words of the charge made against Jesus on the placard placed above his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Could it be that these words were really true? That Jesus really was God's son? Surely not. Then if we turn to John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 25, we find Jesus taking time while he hung there dying to make sure his mother was provided for. John writes, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. None of this was normal behaviour for a man being crucified. The centurion must have wondered what kind of man shows such compassion and love for others while dying on a cross in agony. Despite being in intense physical pain and mental anguish, Jesus was still in control, still strong, still ministering to and thinking of others, not himself. Then as we continue to build up this picture, this dictionary full picture that the centurion saw as he stood at the foot of the cross, nature itself intervened. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. When the sun should have been at its highest point in the sky, it went out like a light. And it became as dark as night. No doubt the soldiers would have started to fire and lit torches, but what did the centurion make of this? Had he heard the Jewish teaching that the darkening of the sun was a judgment from God? If not, surely those watching would have done and would have started talking in frightened whispers. Did this darkness put an end to the crowds mocking and jeering? Did they fall silent? We don't know. And then, while it was still dark, 
Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fulfilment of the opening words of Psalm 22. Did the centurion notice that Jesus was no longer calling God Father as he endured the agony of separation from his Father, as he took on the sins of the world, as he took on our sins that we might be saved? According to John, Jesus then cried out, It is finished. It is finished. And the Greek word used here, tetelestai, literally means paid in full, brought to an end, completed, accomplished. And the perfect tense used here means it is finished and always will be finished. Always will be finished. Because Jesus died for our sins once and for all on that cross 2,000 years ago. Once and for all. For each of us. The centurion must have thought this was a strange thing for a dying man to cry out. It is finished. Luke adds, Jesus then said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, returning to calling God Father, now he's paid the price for our sins before breathing his last. Did the centurion notice Jesus was now calling God his Father again? If so, did he wonder why? And as Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And according to Matthew, there was also an earthquake, a further sign of the presence of God in case there hadn't been enough signs already. The centurion and those with him were filled with awe, terrified by the realisation that Jesus was innocent and not just innocent but that he was precisely who he claimed to be. They had killed the Son of God. They had killed the Son of God. So we reach the point where this centurion, a gentle who'd seen thousands of people die, but had never seen anyone die like this, showing forgiveness, compassion, and love to those who, he crucified, who crucified him, and offering salvation to a common thief, stood at the foot of the cross and said, surely this man was the son of God. Surely this man was the son of God. And according to Luke, they began praising God, praising God at the foot of the cross. There's a story I came across while I was thinking about this, about Ernest Borgnine, an American actor who played the Roman centurion in the 1977 TV series Jesus of Nazareth haven't seen it, but the story's a good one, which I think helps to show us something of both what the centurion might have expressed and the power of a personal encounter with Jesus. You might find it helpful to close your eyes or focus on the cross here at the front of the church as I read what happened. When the time came for the filming of the crucifixion scene, the camera was to be only on Borgnine, looking up at Jesus on the cross. So it was not necessary for the act of playing Jesus to be there. Here is how Borgnine describes what happened next. Zeffirelli, the film's director, put a chalk mark on a piece of scenery beside the cameraman. I want you to look up at that mark, he told me, as if you were looking at Jesus. Do you think it would be possible for somebody to read from the Bible the words Jesus said as he hung on the cross, I asked. I knew the words well from the days of my childhood. Even so... I wanted to hear them now. 
I will do it myself, Zeffirelli said. He found a Bible, opened it to the book of Luke, and signaled for the camera to start rolling. As Zeffirelli began reading Christ's words aloud, I stared up at that chalk mark, thinking what might have gone through the centurion's mind. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The voice was Zeffirelli's, but the words burned into me, the words of Jesus. Forgive me, Father, for even being here, was the centurion's prayer that formed in my thoughts. I am so ashamed, so ashamed. Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, said Jesus to the thief hanging next to him. If Jesus can forgive that criminal, then he will forgive me, I thought. I will lay down my sword and retire to my little farm outside of Rome. Then it happened. As I stared upward, instead of the chalk mark, I suddenly saw the face of Jesus Christ, lifelike and clear. It was not the features of the actor I was used to seeing, but the most beautiful, gentle visage I have ever known. Pain seared, sweat stained, with blood flowing down from thorns pressed deep. His face was still filled with compassion. He looked down at me through tragic, sorrowful eyes with an expression of love beyond description. Then his cry rose against the desert wind, not the voice of Zeffirelli reading from the Bible, but the voice of Jesus himself. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In awe, I watched Jesus' head slump to one side. I knew he was dead. A terrible grief welled within me and completely oblivious to the camera. I started sobbing uncontrollably. Cut, yelled Zeffirelli. Some of the other actors were crying too. I wiped my eyes and looked up again to see where I had seen Jesus. He was gone. Whether I saw a vision of Jesus that windswept day or whether it was only something in my mind, I do not know. It doesn't matter, for I do know that it was a profound experience, a profound spiritual experience, and that I have not been quite the same person since. You simply cannot come close to Jesus without being changed. You simply cannot come close to Jesus without being changed. And that is what I believe the centurion we're thinking about this morning had discovered, albeit unexpectedly, nearly 2,000 years earlier. But what I think is really significant about the centurion's confession of faith is that it came on Good Friday, before the resurrection. And it was uttered by a Gentile who had probably not witnessed any of Jesus' miracles or teachings. His confessional faith came purely from watching Jesus die. As one writer observes, as Christ's atoning work was brought to completion, its dramatic saving power was already at work in the lives of those who were physically closest to him. Even those who didn't know him. And yet, it struck me 
that what struck the centurion about Jesus as he died were those same aspects of his character that were so evident in his public ministry and transformed the lives of so many of those he encountered. His offer of forgiveness, his promise of eternal life, and his endless love and compassion for those often excluded by others. Women, tax collectors, sinners. Think for a moment of his life-transforming encounters with the Samaritan woman and the woman caught in adultery. His invitation to Zacchaeus and Matthew, the tax collector. His healing of the paralytic whose sins he forgave. Or the demon-possessed man we heard about last week. These and other stories of encounters people had with Jesus described in the Gospels are what we normally turn to when we want to tell others about Jesus, tell others what he was like, how he transformed lives. We don't often turn to the accounts of his crucifixion. Or if we do, we do so in the context of his resurrection three days later. Or perhaps just to tell people that Jesus died for our sins. We don't often focus on how he died and the impact of that. And yet, as we can see from looking at the events of that day through the eyes of the centurion, the way Jesus died, the way he responded when he was facing the worst suffering imaginable, is itself an incredibly powerful witness to the fact that he was and is the Son of God. Last week, we are thinking about how we can live out our faith and how we're called to make a difference where we are, on our front lines, our workplaces, families, social networks, wherever it is that we meet people in the course of our daily lives. But looking at the crucifixion through the eyes of the centurion is, I think, a good reminder of the impact the way in which we face times of hardship or suffering can have on people. How do we respond when life is difficult. Because that, like the way Jesus dealt with the pain and separation he faced on the cross, has the potential to witness powerfully to those we encounter on our front lines. If they can see that our faith and trust in Jesus remains, even when our lives don't go to plan, because they won't, then that is potentially a far more powerful testimony or witness to them than how we live our lives when all is going well. Do the people we encounter still see Christ in us when we're finding life difficult? Do they see Jesus in us when we face ill health, death, relationship breakdown, family struggles, financial worries, workplace stress, or redundancy, for example, or on a national scale when we face crises like Brexit and the current concerns over the spread of the coronavirus? Do others see that we as Christians, we as church, respond any differently from non-Christians when faced with these situations? If they look at us in the coming weeks, are they going to notice any difference? Or are we indulging in the same level of panic that so many people are being caught up in? Are we any different? Do they see us praying to God, our strength and refuge, and turning to him for support and guidance, rather than relying on our own resources, our own strength? I just want to add here that that's not to say we can't express our distress and our anguish, our anger even at God, when things don't go right. As we've seen, Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But the difference is, when we do so, we can be confident that God hears us and is with us in the midst of our trials, even when it perhaps doesn't feel like he is. Because unlike Jesus, we don't need to endure separation from God because Jesus did that for us on the cross. Do others see that we have that sense of peace that passes understanding in the face of difficulty as we put our trust in God? Can others see the difference that our faith in Jesus makes to us in situations that feel beyond our control? When we turn to God, our rock, and fix our eyes on Jesus. And again, I want to add that that doesn't mean we should feel really bad when we do end up panicking and stressing like other people. Because we do. We're only humans. We're not Jesus. But the thing is, it could be a really powerful witness in itself if when we do that, when we've done that, and then we turn back to God, we say to people, sorry we messed up, sorry we panicked about this. And that itself is powerful because it shows that we're responding differently. We may be panicking at times, because we do, but, but if we then ultimately know that God is there with us, he is our rock. So is the transformation that our encounters with Jesus have brought to our lives evident in the bad times as well as the good? Do we remember that Jesus is there in the midst of the storm with us? He is there in our boat. Remember that the centurion's praise and confession of faith began at the foot of the cross, not the resurrection. And that's where our praises too should begin, because it was Jesus' death on the cross that made it possible for us to receive God's forgiveness and to become children of God. And Jesus was willing to go through such suffering because of the depth of his love for us, for each and every one of us here today. He died on the cross for the centurion and soldiers who nailed him there. He died for the thieves hanging on either side of him. He died for the Jews who plotted to kill him. His love was not reserved for the disciples alone. And the same is true today. Jesus longs for all to come to know him not just the religious or morally upright or the people who are getting on okay. And it's not for us to judge who is or is not worthy of God's grace and love because God's grace and love is open to all. Just as the tough, hardened Roman centurion's heart was transformed by his encounter with Jesus as he stood at the foot of the cross and watched him die, Jesus is still touching and transforming the lives of seemingly unreachable people today because you simply cannot come close to Jesus without being changed. You simply cannot come close to him without being changed. Whether that change is sudden and dramatic or very, very gradual, it is powerful. I'd like to close by telling you the story of one such person whose life has been radically transformed by his encounter with Jesus. Shane Taylor was classed as one of Britain's most dangerous criminals. From a young age, he started to burgle houses and steal cars. He stabbed people and sold drugs. Soon he was on the run for kidnapping and attempted murder. Shane eventually got caught and put in prison. But this did little to stem his rebellion. His hatred of authority saw him stab two prison officers with some broken glass after he wasn't allowed to use the prison gym, sparking a riot. His out-of-control behaviour quickly saw him transferred to a high-security prison. Even there, he needed further locking up 
and was placed within a close supervision system. Shane says, They felt I was a danger to everybody. They had to feed me through a hatch in the door because they couldn't have physical contact with me. But having met another prisoner, a murderer, who had become a Christian while in prison, Shane eventually agreed to attend an Alpha course in prison, chiefly to get the free cake and biscuits. He railed against his teachings at first. He said, I thought there's no chance for me. I'm going to hell. But then I was hearing stuff like, Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for sinners. And about halfway through the Alpha course, Shane was led to attempt his first prayer. And he had an experience which would leave him with an unshakable faith and change his life forever. He says, I started praying. Please, God, if you are real, come into my life because I hate who I am. I started to feel an energy in my stomach, which raised up until I just burst into uncontrollable tears. From that moment on, my life changed. In that split second, I knew it was real. I knew God existed. I knew Jesus had touched me, and that I was going to live for him forever. Shane's behaviour changed so much that within weeks he went from being in permanent segregation to getting a trusted job in the prison chaplaincy. He said, nobody could believe it. Some of the inmates would mock me, but I was not bothered. I would just run about preaching about Jesus because I was so happy. I used to get called Dot off EastEnders every time I quoted scripture. <laughs> and almost exactly a year later, Shane was freed from prison. Jesus has changed my life, Shane says. Jesus has shown me how to love and how to forgive. I'm helping with Alpha in prisons. Now I'm able to tell other prisoners about Jesus. It's amazing. Shane's encounter with Jesus transformed his life. He went from being a dangerous criminal, accustomed, like the centurion we're thinking about today, to violence and brutality as a way of life, to someone who now reaches out to those who others might dismiss as unreachable, showing them love and forgiveness. The very things that the centurion had witnessed Jesus doing as he hung there on the cross for us. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to share communion together. But let's take some time now, as we come before God in worship, to think about what we see when we think of the events of Good Friday. What does Jesus' death on the cross look like through our eyes? How do we respond? Are we, like the centurion, led to worship the one who showed such love and compassion for others as he endured the agony of the cross? to declare with the centurion, surely this man was the son of God? Or do we, like Shane, need to pray perhaps for the first time? Please, God, if you're real, come into my life. Let's take this time to reflect on what the cross means for us and how Jesus' death on that cross has transformed our lives. Amen.